Welcome to Ibra's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Today, we're going to be talking about the history of a Hollywood studio and its takeover by conglomerates, which always makes for fascinating reading. My guest has a passion for writing about the subject. He's Bernard F. Dick. He's author of Engulfed, The Death of Paramount Pictures and the Birth of Corporate Hollywood, published by the University Press of Kentucky and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. Bernard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I was curious about why you focused on Paramount, because so many of the other studios in Hollywood went through that same issue of conglomerates picking them up. So why did you decide on Paramount particularly? Well, Paramount was one of the first. Actually, the first was Universal, which in 1962 was taken over by uh, MCA. And then a few years later, in 1966, Gulf and Western took over Paramount. Now, one of the main reasons why I selected Paramount is because the very last president of Paramount, George Weltner, gave all of his memos, budgets, production notes to the American Heritage Center at the University of Wyoming in Laramie. And once I discovered there was an archive there, which to me was a treasure trove, I knew that I had to use this archive because that would enable me to really do a thorough study of Paramount and at the eve of its going out of business as a freestanding movie studio and becoming a subsidiary of a conglomerate. So the incentive was the George Weltner archive at the American Heritage Center. How is it that people who are in the business can donate their papers and their, in many cases, corporate papers, their memos, as you mentioned just a moment ago, how are they able to do that and donate it to a library or an archive without the corporation saying, hey, wait a minute, that's our material? Well, there probably was a the original at somewhere or other in the Paramount vaults, but he kept, I guess these were copies of the originals, and I think he may have gotten some kind of a tax break by donating them, but that is very common these days. It is. I was just curious, because even with a copy, it's still material that is technically proprietary to the, to the company, but this is it's a side note, but just something that I'm interested in asking about. It intrigued me that there was that much material. So once you got going, what surprised you about what you found? You have a wealth of knowledge. You've written several books on Hollywood. But what was it about this particular subject, Paramount, and the death of it, and the birth of corporate Hollywood? What was it that surprised you most? Well, what surprised me most was that, in one way, I can understand MCA taking over Universal, because MCA had formerly been a um, talent agency. As a matter of fact, it was a very powerful talent agency run by uh, the great Lou Wasserman. But in order to own a studio, MCA had to get out of the talent business and just become a regular owner of a studio. So Universal became part of MCA, along with other assets as well. So that made sense, a former talent agency owning a movie studio. Now, Gulf and Western 
had absolutely no connection with movies or media in general. Golf and Western was the creation of Charlie Bluthorn, who was known as the Mad Austrian. And, well, he was a Jew or a Christian, depending upon to whom you were speaking. I mean, he was a very enigmatic, also a very colorful character. But he created this conglomerate, actually it was a mega conglomerate, called Gulf and Western, which had divisions in everything. I mean, there was beef, there were cigars, and all kinds of cigars, all brands of cigars. There was metal, New Jersey zinc, you know. And there was financing as well. I mean, you could get loans through Gulf and Western. So Gulf and Western literally had something for everyone. And Bluthorn got on the board of Paramount in 1966, and he realized that Paramount was really floundering. I mean, yeah, they had some hits at the beginning of 1960, Psycho, of course, Breakfast at Tiffany's, HUD. But then there were really bombs like Where Love Is Gone and Sylvia and Harlow and so forth. And it, it was really ripe for a takeover, so... In 1966, why not add a movie studio to all of these other divisions within Gulf and Western? So that becomes the leisure time division, under which you get Paramount, you get Paramount Television, you get Desilu Studios, which is where I Love Lucy was filmed, and you get Famous Music, the music publishing company, and you also get Simon & Schuster, the book publisher. So, you know, you get all of this as, as a package. And, uh, you know, why Charlie Bluthorn wanted to do, take over a movie studio? The only answer I could give to that question is what happens in Citizen Kane. When Charles Foster Kane goes through his assets after his mother has died, what he's inherited, he sees that there is a newspaper and he says, I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. I really think that went through Charlie Bluthorn's mind. Gee, I think it would be fun to have a movie studio, not run it, because he couldn't run it, but to own it. And there was something glamorous about owning a movie studio, or even about being in touch with Hollywood types. I mean, Hollywood still conjures up a, a, a mystique. It has a mystique about it. You know, say you mentioned Hollywood, you know, you, th you think of Razzle Dazzle and, and the Golden Age and all of that. But even today, as tacky as Hollywood Boulevard is, I mean, it still draws people to the Chinese theaters so that they can look at the handprints and the footprints. You know, it's, it's la la land. It is. And you wrote about the history of Paramount before you got to the point about the takeover. And that's worth reading in and of itself because it wasn't just Paramount suddenly becoming Paramount. It became a bunch of different individuals and different companies and different studios all getting together along the way. And then finally you had Paramount Studios, which then became, as you said, ripe for takeover. The interesting part, too, is that it's not just a takeover by Gulf and Western. It continued on through the decades. It never, it never came back to being a separate studio. 
No, it never, and none of them ever did. The only freestanding studio in Hollywood today is the Walt Disney Company, which is amazing because, you know, in the 30s and 40s, Disney had to uh, uh, release its films through a studio, release most of them through RKO, which, of course, became defunct in 1957. But it's amazing how Disney which was not even regarded as a studio during those days, is now the freestanding studio. It, and it also owns 21st Century, which includes, of course, the movie studio 20th Century Fox. It is funny how the wheel turns and things just change as it does. And yet, as you mentioned, since Walt Disney Studios is the only freestanding one, there were so many independent studios around, even smaller studios, such as the Goldwyn Studios and their general service studios, etc. They were smaller independent studios, but they all eventually got wrapped up in consolidation by larger corporations. Yeah. Well, that's how you survive. I mean, you they once the studio system began to deteriorate, which it did in the 1950s, what other choice did a studio have but to be gobbled up by some conglomerate? It couldn't, they couldn't survive by themselves. You mentioned the studio system. Just for our listeners who may not know, why, number one, the creation of the studio system, what it was, and why the degradation and eventual death of the studio system? Well, that was all described very beautifully in Neil Gabler's book, an empire of their own, how the Jews created Hollywood. And that is true for the most part. Hollywood was the creation of either Jewish immigrants or the sons of Jewish immigrants. The exception, of course, was the Goy Studio, which was 20th Century Fox, and uh, that was headed by Daryl Evzanik, who was a Christian. But it's an extraordinary story how these men, like Louis Mayer, who is a former junk dealer, you know, bought a theater, and this was at the time of the uh, Nickelodeons, that he bought another theater, and then he said to himself, why should I stay an exhibition? You know, why don't I see if I can go into distribution? And then, once you go into distribution, well, why do I distribute films? Why do I show films in theaters? Why don't I make films? And that is exactly how it went. I mean, uh, Carl Lemley, who was the founder of the studio that became and still is Universal Pictures, went to Chicago, saw this building that he discovered was a Nickelodeon, that he discovered that all you need to open a Nickelodeon is to find a storefront, rent chairs from uh, a social club or a funeral parlor, get a projector and a projectionist, get some films from one of the film exchanges, get a barker outside to advertise the bill for the day, and you have a Nickelodeon. And then why stop with one Nickelodeon when you can get another Nickelodeon? And why stop with Nickelodeons when you can go into distribution and you don't have to go down to the film exchanges and get film you can actually distribute your own. So you go into distribution, and then let's open up, like, let's put on a show, let's open up a movie studio so that we make our pictures, 
we distribute our pictures and we show our pictures in our own theater chains. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. And and also, too, these were individuals who were coming from that kind of varied background, and yet they loved the motion picture industry, as opposed to when consolidation happened, and you mentioned Charles Bluthorn. He may have liked the glamour, but he really, you say in your book that it was someone not so much interested in making movies as in making money through movies. Yes, that that was it. That was it. Whereas the, um, well, unfortunately, they're called the moguls, but I regard them as the creators of the studio system. These men, and they were men, I'm not being sexist, but these men actually loved both. They loved making movies. They loved telling stories. And that, if if you read through some of their memos, the story was paramount. They loved, I mean, Louis Mayer loved telling stories about happy families. Yes, that was the MGM signature. Oh, yeah, the Andy Hardy films. Right. Even even musicals like maybe in St. Louis. I mean, it centers around a family. And each studio in those days had a separate identity. So you just mentioned Louis B. Mayer. And Warner Brothers had another kind of identity. And Columbia had another kind of identity. So each studio had its own individual sense. And people got a, got a sense of that sense when they would go to the movies. And if they knew it was a Warner Brothers picture, it would be this type. If it was an MGM, it would be this type. Well, yes. I mean, I grew up in the 1940s. In fact, I think I saw my first movie probably... Well, I know where I was on December 7th, 1941. It was at the Westside Theater in Scranton, Pennsylvania, with my Lithuanian grandmother, and we saw Sergeant York. And then, of course, when we came out, I mean, you know, people were talking about Pearl Harbor. I didn't even know what Pearl Harbor was, but even when we walked home, and it was a long walk, there was something ominous about that night because there were um, very few lights on in the houses. And then when we got home, my mother told us about the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor. But yes, I go back to 1941, but even by about 42, 43, I could tell the difference between the studios basically from their logo. I mean, I knew what the universal logo, which was the revolving globe, represented. Uh, represented horror, you know, the Wolfman, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, Abbott and Costello, then there's those youth movie musicals with Donald O'Connor and Peggy Ryan and so forth. And I knew the Warner Brothers was the tough guy, tough woman studio. You know, Bogart, Cagney, Robinson, and of course, Betty Davis, who to me was an absolute phenomenon. I, I don't remember what the first Betty Davis movie I ever saw, but my God, that woman was... <laughs> uh, 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 there was something mythic about her. I mean, she was always different. She was like Meryl Streep today. She was always different in every movie. Yeah, that's talent. Yeah, I never exactly. knew women like that. <laughs> when, when did you develop an interest in writing about the movies and Hollywood and studios? Well, I, I hate to have to say this to your audience, but you see, I'm more or less here under false pretenses. My my degrees are all in Latin and Greek, classical languages. And uh, I taught classical languages for about nine years. And then I decided I, I really should get out of this because I was interested in literature at the time, that is, comparative literature. Managed to publish a few things in Complet, 
then got a job teaching English and comparative literature because my days for teaching the classics were over. And then I was only at Fairleigh Dickinson University for three years when they decided to found a communications program. They needed someone to teach the history of film. I had absolutely no credentials whatsoever. Uh, The people in charge knew that I knew about movies and I liked movies and I went to movies regularly. And they said, could you put together a course in the history of film? So like so many people from my generation who moved into film from other disciplines, primarily English, but also history as well, you know, I said, well, you know, when you're young, you're stupid, you know, and and you take the challenge without thinking of the repercussions that might come. Well, fortunately, no repercussions came. So, yeah, as of 1973, I started teaching film, and then I realized that the textbooks that I was using were really not terribly conducive to the type of student I had, so I wrote my own, which was Anatomy of Film, which I'm proud to say is still in existence today and is still available. So that's how it starts. I've told students over and over and over again uh, to quote the Cy Coleman song from Seesaw, it's not how you start, it's where you finish. And your major may have nothing whatsoever to do with the career path that you've chosen. And that was certainly true with me, and it was true of many people who started in English and then ended up in film and stayed in film and never went back to English again. Yeah, it's an interesting journey that we all have. And in your case, because you, I, I talk about people who are passionate and follow pursuits that are to their interest, and you clearly have been writing several books on the subject. So it hasn't left your interest yet and probably won't. When you started researching the Paramount book, and as you mentioned earlier, with the collection that you were able to access all the memos, was he in essence, and we're talking about George Weldner again, was he, I know I'm going to simplify this, but was he one of the heroes of the book? Oh, I haven't, yes. And, you know, there is a man who never intended to go into film. He went to Columbia University, got a um, degree in chemical engineering, and expected to be an engineer for the rest of his career. Well, you may not know it from the last name, but the Weldners were Hungarian. And Adolf Zucker, of course, who founded Paramount, was also a Hungarian. And uh, he took care of other Hungarians that he knew. And he made it easy for George to get a job in the film processing lab in the um, Astoria facility. Paramount had two facilities. There was, of course, the big one on Marathon Street in Hollywood. And then they had another studio in Astoria, Queens, which was very good for actors who were New York-based or who were appearing in a show, because you could cross the Queensboro Bridge, go to the Astoria studio, work in the morning and the afternoon, then come back and do your show that evening. And once Weldner 
became involved in film processing, he realized that distribution was a very important aspect of the motion picture industry because what you were doing is preparing films in the lab for distribution, both domestically and internationally. So then he began to move up the uh, ladder at Paramount into distribution and eventually became president of distribution. Then in 1964, when Barney Balaban, president, had retired, Weldner was the only game in town to take over the presidency. And he did in 64, quite reluctantly, because it was not an easy job for him, because he had to deal with producers like Hal Wallace, who had his independent production company uh, there. And well, particularly uh, very interesting memos on Jerry Lewis, who just exasperated him, because Lewis's ego was so enormous. He wanted uh, a film to have its premiere in New York at this theater and wasn't available. And uh, the arguments back and forth, particularly over movies that uh, Lewis made at the end of his career, which were not particularly very good, like Cinderella and the abominable visit to a small planet, playing the role that was created on the stage by uh, Cyril Richard. But it was very difficult for Weltner, who doesn't come from a production background, having to deal with these people and their oversized egos. Well, wasn't he also, though, Bernard, wasn't he also an East Coast guy and he's dealing with the West Coast from the East Coast? Yes, I mean, he he lived on on Long Island, but, you know, when he had to come into uh, Hollywood, he had to uh, stay in Los Angeles. But, yes, what he really preferred to to do was to uh, stay um, at at his home in Long Island, yes. Just take the um, train to work and go to his office at 1501 Broadway, which was the Paramount building. Now, now the facade that was once the Paramount Theater on Broadway between 43rd and 45th Street is the Hard Rock Cafe. It does change. Yes. You talk a lot about different people uh, as part of the story about Paramount, and it's quite a cast of characters in terms of the takeover by a larger corporation and then other powerful people as well. If I had to have you narrow down one quote-unquote villain in the story, other than perhaps <laughs> Charlie Bluthorn, who would that be? Well, there there were not... I would hesitate to call them villains. Is it more just a, a different mentality than the typical Hollywood studio operator? Is that what the issue was? When, when you have a larger company taking over a studio, it's, it's a whole different mentality. So you're having people take over Hollywood institutions that are not necessarily from Hollywood. Well, that that's true, but... When Gulf and Western took over Paramount in 66, George Welton knew that his days were numbered, and he left in 67. Now, Charlie Bluthorn knew that he really couldn't handle production. He had to get somebody, or at least two people, and he got two people, who could really run the studio. There was the studio and there was a conglomerate, and the studio was the subsidiary of the conglomerate, but the studio needed someone to run it. And he was very fortunate, at least for a time, to get two extraordinary men, Peter Bart, who later became the uh, editor of Variety, and Robert Evans. 
And the two of them worked together beautifully, and they were extremely creative. Evans really handled production. Bart had this nebulous title of Vice President Creative Affairs, but basically he and Evans functioned as a team. Now, Bart realized that there was great film potential in Mario Puzo's The Godfather, and this explains why Paramount ended up producing The Godfather. But the problem was convincing the board that a movie about the mafia could actually attract audiences because Paramount had made an earlier film called The Brotherhood. I don't know if you saw it with Kirk Douglas. And that was also about the mafia. And of course, it dealt with the violation of the mafia code of Omerta, which is silence. And even if a member of the family breaks the law, then somebody in the family has to kill him. And, I mean, you know, you think, well, this is fratricide. Well, yes, it is fratricide because Alex Cord, who plays the younger brother to Kirk Douglas, ends up having to kill him because he violated the uh, code. So uh, the idea was, you know, how could we possibly make this movie acceptable? Well, Bart and Evans got Francis Ford Coppola, who actually was a screenwriter before he became a director. And he uh, won an Oscar for the screenplay for Patton. And he and Puzo worked out the screenplay for The Godfather so that the emphasis would be, yes, it's a crime family, but most important, it is a family. And I think... Most audiences recognize themselves in the Corleones. They would not have gone to the extreme that the Corleones went through. I mean, you know, Fredo breaks the code. Fredo has to get killed. And Michael's sister marries a man who breaks the code. So the, the, uh, Michael's brother-in-law uh, has to be killed at the time that Michael is officiating as an actual godfather at the baptism of the brother-in-law's son, which is an extraordinary ending uh, in The Godfather. We have this intercutting between the hit and the baptism, and Michael saying that he's renouncing Satan and all of his pomps while the satanic act of the hit is being executed. But I think we can all see ourselves, and we've all had family problems, disputes, and maybe we even reached the stage where we say, oh, God, I'd like to wring his neck. You know? <laughs> but, and, but of course, Corleone's do it, whereas we just, the rest of it, just think it. Right. But I, I, even better than The Godfather, and, and Bart and Evans put Godfather 2 into production, which, I mean, to my way of thinking, is even a greater film because it's an epic where the lives of both Vito Corleone, played, of course, in The Godfather by the older Marlon Brando, and in the movie by Robert De Niro, and his son, Michael, are interwoven. And, 
I mean, the texture of the shots, I mean, some of the, the, the shots that are on the turn of the century and such are in one, have one visual style and the contemporary, another visual style. Right, almost a sepia tone type. It is almost sepia tone. Yeah. And even The Godfather has that quality, particularly in the scenes in the Don's study. I mean, it's dark, it's brown. There is such a thing as synesthesia, I know, but I'll tell you, whenever I see those scenes, I feel mahogany. (laughs) I mean, I actually experience the the color of mahogany. Interesting. And it's really weird, but God, that's Gordon Willis, the uh, cinematographer. I mean, these, these people were geniuses. They really were. And we took them for granted, you know. And that's, unfortunately, what happens in corporate Hollywood. My last question, and there's so much more in the book, so I I recommend people read it. My last question, and that is, part of your title of the book is The Birth of Corporate Hollywood. Do you foresee the death of corporate Hollywood, or is it just going to become more and more corporate? No, I mean, it's it's here to stay. I mean, you know, we're never going to go back to the studio system because the same set of circumstances, historical circumstances, that brought it into existence are never going to come back. And I have to keep telling this to people, say, oh, God, the movies today. I mean, Peter Bogdanovich, I understand, said he hasn't seen a movie in five or six years. Well, yeah, I can understand that, but let's face it. Bogart said to Bergman in Casablanca, we'll always have Paris, we'll always have the Golden Age movies, we'll always have, I hope, Turner Classic movies. Of course, the cable networks show them. There's a wonderful cable channel called Encore Westerns that shows the old Western, the classic Westerns of the past. You know, we're always going to have the Golden Age movies in some format or other. I mean, so many of them are available on DVD and Blu-ray. That's you know, true, but what about... your own library. Exactly, but what about the changes in technology that would allow lower costs for making a movie and therefore perhaps a, the rise of an independent studio? Well, I mean, uh, you, you'll probably have a great deal of digital filmmaking, but, you know, even so, you I, I, I hate to see the... You, format change from celluloid to um, computer-generated. But if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I mean, we're always going to have movies in some format or other. And as a certain actress said in a certain movie, I didn't get smaller, the pictures got smaller. Yes, well, that was Norma Desmond, yes. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, Sunset Boulevard, you know, it was certainly one of Billy Wilder's masterpieces. Well, thank you. My guest has been Bernard F. Dick. He's author of Engulfed, The Death of Paramount Pictures and the Birth of Corporate Hollywood. It's published by the University Press of Kentucky. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. Bernard, thank you for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.